What a joy to be able to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. We're going to look into chapter 9, chapter 8, verse 1, all the way down to 9.17. So we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover this morning. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to give a special word of appreciation to a group that has worked incredibly hard uh, during this season in the life of our church. All of our staff are working diligently to create online discipleship and, and uh, produce um, ways for you as families and individuals to grow in your walk with the Lord during this season. But there is a group here at our church that um, without them, we would be stuck right now, and that's our IT and media team. And they are doing a phenomenal job uh, making sure that we're able to produce these services live. That's important to me. These are not pre-recorded services. I want to be live with you uh, on these Sunday mornings and helping us with all of our uh, Zoom meetings and, and all of the online materials. And so uh, I, hopefully I'm not leaving anybody out here, but if you get a chance, I want to encourage you to encourage uh, Justin Pedigo, David McLaughlin, uh, Harrison Linda Taylor Lowen, Oscar Rodriguez, and Chris Eflin, uh, that group, they have just done an outstanding job. Even if you've noticed, we've made some changes uh, to our website to make it a little easier for you to give online and to participate with us and to watch online. So uh, they are up here around the clock. They're at home working. They're doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I'm grateful for them. If they're not doing what they're doing, you're not watching me this morning. So none of this would matter if they weren't here. So if you get a chance, um, I'd love for you to applaud for them right now if you're in your home, but they wouldn't hear you anyway. So, uh, but we got uh, one or two people here applauding, but you applaud for them. And uh, if you get a chance, send them a note of thanks and gratitude. Well, let's uh, kind of bring, bring ourselves up to speed before we jump into chapter 8 here. You'll remember a couple weeks ago in chapter 6, we looked at Noah. Noah uh, builds the ark by faith that all of Noah's life, his present life, is governed by a certain future event. And God has promised Noah, you trust in me. Noah, you trust me, I'll see you through to the end. You will survive my judgment. And really what we've seen in Noah is a picture of the kind of person who survives the judgment of God. That's what we've really seen in Noah is the kind of person who survives the judgment of God. And what have we seen? Here is Noah. He's a man who is declared righteous. In fact, that word righteous in chapter 6, the first time we see the word righteous or righteousness in Scripture, he's declared righteous how? On the basis of grace through faith. That Noah's an individual, he's clinging to the promise of God, that God's going to send somebody, and on the basis of his faith, he uh, finds favor or grace with God. And similar to Abraham, as we're going to see in a few weeks as we get to Abraham, Abraham believed in God. It was credited to him as righteousness. We've seen this throughout Genesis, that salvation has always been an issue of faith. But what else did we see in Noah's life? Not only is this a man who believed in God, but he obeyed God. 
He was obedient to the word of God. Even when his faith and his obedience was contrary to the world and to everything he knew and could see, he obeyed. That is the kind of person who survives the judgment of God. It is a person of faith. Faith in the promise of God to send somebody to save and a faith that is manifested in obedience. Not just a person who claims, yeah, I believe in God. No, it is a person whose faith in God is manifested by their obedience. As James says, faith without works is dead. And then as you move into chapter seven, we briefly touched on chapter seven. I'm gonna give you an overview of it really quickly. You're gonna need to read it on your own, all right? You're gonna need to study it. But these are the high points of chapter seven. In verses one through five, Noah and his family, we mentioned this last time, they get on board the ark seven days prior to the flood. Meaning what? Meaning they got on board the ark by means of faith. They couldn't get on board the ark after the rain started. They had to get on before by means of faith. Then you see in verses six through nine, it's a powerful picture of salvation. The animal realm begins to come to Noah and come to the ark. And the picture there is a, it's a picture of almost a migration of animals, that these animals are somehow alerted to the judgment of God and they respond. They're drawn to God and they respond. In fact, I won't spend too much time here. We got a lot of ground to cover, but I just love picturing this in my mind, the zebras. Uh, Mr. Zebra goes home, honey, pack up. We're jumping on board this ark. What in the world are you talking about? Well, Noah says judgment's coming. I believe him. Well, nobody else is getting on board. Well, I believe it, and we're getting on board. And I can just imagine them starting to gather, and there's some orangutans and whatever, sparrows, whatever else. And they just start migrating. And I just picture Noah there saying, come to me. Come to the ark. There's rest. There's salvation with me. And can you imagine what it must have been like a little later? They were saying, praise Noah. They had a common savior, and not only did they have a common savior, they had a common bond that they were all saved by means of faith. What a powerful picture of salvation for us. How did we come to faith? God just alerted our hearts to the nature of our sin and judgment. God drew us to himself, and what did we do? We responded. We got on board the ark of salvation in Jesus Christ powerful picture here is the animal realm migrates to the ark of salvation and they get on board and then in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 7 the judgment comes like a thief in the night it comes suddenly you look in in verse 11 and a deep burst open so you got water rushing forth from the ground and water falling from heaven and it comes upon the earth suddenly and in verse 16 what does God do God closes the door God seals them into this ark And they are safe, they are sealed, and they are secured in God's salvation. Is that not a picture of our salvation? When we come to faith in Christ, we are sealed by what? Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, a, a pledge, a guarantee of our inheritance and our salvation. And then in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 7, when judgment occurs, no one escapes. Only this family that has gotten on board of this ark of salvation. You know, ark literally means coffin. 
they have gotten on board this coffin and by means of death to them, their own selves, they're going to they're know the salvation of God. So just this family, Noah and his family, saved by means of faith. And they float for at least five months. Now, let's look at chapter 8. Read with me. We got a little to read here, so hopefully you got your Bible in front of you. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. And he sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. And then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. And so he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening. And behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been? So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. And then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove. But she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st uh, year and the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. And then Noah removed the covering from the ark and, and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the uh, 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your, your sons' wives with you. And bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly upon the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they're given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I'll give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. 
And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons uh, with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a, of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud of the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As we have been doing, we're going to pray. If you are able this morning to uh, take a knee, uh, you can join me this morning as we, as we gather in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning incredibly humbled before your word. God, we recognize today that we are a people who are desperately dependent upon you. In fact, Christ has said to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, God, we lean heavily upon you this morning, and we plead with you to move in this sacred moment of reading and studying your word. God, I pray that you would draw us close to yourself, especially during this season. Lord, help us to hear your voice in your word today. Change us and mold us Grow the depth of our understanding of who you are and how we should relate to you. We're so grateful for your word. The opportunity to know you through it. Speak to us, Lord. We're desperate for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come to chapter 8 in verse 1. It's a powerful picture that we see here of God's recreation. If you read chapter one or verse one of chapter eight, you've got this picture of God caused a wind to pass over the earth. And so uh, you have a, a, a watery, chaotic mass. And all of a sudden, the wind begins to blow over the surface of the earth. And if you know that, that chapter 1 of Genesis, that reminds us very much of God's original creation. That you'll remember in chapter 1 that the world was this watery matrix and yet the spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. And so the picture that we have here in chapter 8 is a recreation of the earth. And so we've got a fresh start. We've got a new beginning with Noah and his family and it says at the very beginning of chapter 8 that God remembered Noah. And it's important to know this doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah. God never forgot Noah. When the Bible speaks of, of remembering, of God remembering, it's talking about his timely intervention. 
It's a term of endearment. It's a term of devotion. It's the same terminology that was, was used of Rachel in her barrenness as she sought God. And it says that the Lord remembered her. Not that God ever forgot Rachel, but at that moment, God acted in his kindness on her behalf. And so God remembers Noah. Now, why in the world would this be so important for Noah and his family? Well, think about how long Noah and his family have been on board this ark. You've got 40 days of rain. You've got 150 days of just floating. You've got 40 days before you send out the raven. And then you've got 20 days of bird watching and sending out ravens and doves. You add all that up. And Noah and his family, they've been on board the ark for, for approximately eight months. Some scholars say they were on the ark for, for a year. Imagine this, one year cooped up on this sealed coffin with your wife, your three sons, and their wives. And we think our quarantine situation is bad. I mean, imagine what that must have been like on this ark. This, to me is a picture of a man of remarkable patience. And really, that's just one little picture of Noah's patience. Remember, Noah spent a hundred years building an ark. This is a man of remarkable patience, constantly waiting upon God in his life. And what was Noah waiting on? He was always waiting on God to fulfill his promise to carry him through the judgment. And I wish that this picture of Noah waiting on God, I wish it was the exception and not the norm. I wish I could tell you this morning, that's the rare exception in the Christian life that we wait upon God. But, but that would be me lying to you because you look into God's word and so much of the Christian life is characterized by waiting on God. You want to do an interesting study? Look up, look up all the times the phrase wait upon the Lord occurs in scripture. Noah had to wait on God. You remember Abraham and Sarah. We're going to study them a little later. They're going to have to wait on God. God promises them a son, but then nothing happens. Rachel, I just mentioned, she had to wait on God. David had to wait on God. Paul had to wait on God. Every great man or woman of faith at some point or another went through a situation where God gave them a promise, asked them to trust him, and the very next thing that happened was nothing, or at least it appeared so. And these individuals had to wait upon God. And the reality is some of you are in a season of waiting right now. Some of you are just waiting for this virus to be open like me, over like me. Some of you are waiting on test results or, or waiting to reopen your business, waiting to go back to work waiting maybe to send your kids back to school, waiting on a stimulus check, waiting to hear back on a job interview, waiting for a new job opportunity, waiting on a pregnancy, waiting for a furlough to end, or maybe just waiting on a better day. And listen, in these seasons of waiting, it is not a, a passive time, but it's a season in which we draw close to God and we trust and obey his word. You know, it's so easy in the midst of these seasons of waiting to begin to wonder, has God forgotten me? 
And don't you think there had to come some days that Noah thought, did God forget about us out here on the sea? It's been a while, not heard from him. In fact, if you look at this story in chapter six and seven, it says often that God spoke to Noah or the Lord said to Noah, you, after God shuts the door, you got no word from God. It's as if all of a sudden God goes silent. And some of you may feel that way this morning. You're in a season of waiting and waiting. And it feels like God is doing nothing. And it almost feels like God has gone silent. And I pray today that you would be encouraged on the basis of Noah's faith that God has not forgotten you. And God in his perfect sovereignty and according to his perfect will and plan always remembers those whom he loves. So can I just encourage you today, wait upon the Lord. And in that season of waiting, trust and obey. Trust his promise, trust his word. Even when you can't physically see his hand and even when you may not audibly be able to hear his voice, trust his heart and know that God always remembers those whom he loves. And in verse 15, as you look down in verse 8, all of a sudden, God breaks his silence. Noah, can you imagine how refreshing this must have been when God finally speaks? And what is God's word? Essentially, Noah, now it's time to get off this ark. And please take note, Noah doesn't take one step off that ark without the direction of God. He is not going to take one step of his life without some level of direction from the Lord. And so here is Noah. Can you imagine Noah stepping out into a completely new world? Everyone else is gone. Noah must have felt to some extent like a second Adam. Stepping into the sunlight of a new creation. And what does he do? What is Noah's reaction In verse 20, we note there that the first thing that Noah does is he reinstitutes sacrifice. His first act upon leaving the ark is not to build himself a house. It's not to build himself a shelter. It's to build an altar upon which to sacrifice. And I think the picture that we are intended to see here is this is an acknowledgement on the part of Noah that we are still clinging to the promise of God. That is what, what has always marked God's people is a foundational trust and faith in the God who will send some, someone to, to save us from sin, Satan, and death. Remember, that was what sacrifice always was a sign towards that person who would come and lay down their lives for our ultimate rest and salvation. And so I think Noah, to some extent, is saying, even as he emerges from this ark, we are a people uh, similar to Joshua. As for me and my house, we're going to continue to serve the Lord. And the response of God in verse 21, God is going to respond in three ways. He's going to demonstrate grace and mercy. He's then going to pronounce blessings upon them. And then he's going to enter into a covenant with Noah and his family and with all his descendants, meaning you and me. And that's why I think all these verses have to go together. Even though it's a long passage, 
all of this. The chapter breaks, remember, were not originally there. Those were added much later. I think chapter 9's chapter break is, is an unfortunate one because I think these verses are intended to take together. The more I read it, the more you see the beauty of it. So God smells the aroma of Noah's sacrifice, that we can continue to be a people of the promise of the word of God, trusting in him. And God responds by saying what? He says to Noah and his family, never again. This is never, not judgment in this kind of way by means of a flood. I'm never going to do it again. Now, why is God not going to do it again? Is man all of a sudden here? Is man all of a sudden better now and he's good and he's not going to have any issues? Well, that's certainly not the case because God says very quickly there in verse 21, even though uh, every inclination of his heart is towards evil from his youth, that man is still a sinner. And we're going to see he's going to grow increasingly sinful as we move forward. But in this moment, God is saying, I'm making a promise. And he turns aside from his wrath and he turns towards grace for no reason other than he is a gracious God. Meaning, God is going to make this promise not because Noah is such a good person. He's going to make this promise because God is an incredibly gracious God. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And why would this promise be so important to Noah and his family? It would be so important to them because can you imagine after this, the very next time a rain cloud began to roll in and thunder began to boom in the sky and water began to fall, what would they think? They think, here we go again, that the mark of faithfulness in God's people would now be paranoia that we're all going to get judged every time the rain begins to fall. And so God, in a great act of mercy and grace, says, never again. And then he calls upon Noah and his family in the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, it says, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God blesses them. Similar to Adam in chapter one, again, you've got this parallel to the, the, to the original creation in the recreation. He calls Noah and his family to re, repopulate. It's, it's the blessing of, of procreation that children are an incredible blessing from God. But now as they begin to repopulate, there's a need for protection in verse 2, God is going to put a natural fear or terror between man and the animal realm. And so what we see here is that uh, prior to the flood, we did not see the savagery uh, of animals. But post-flood, now we're going to see that animals are going to begin to eat other animals. Most commentators believe that what's occurring here is that prior to the flood, you had a vast amount of vegetation. Both man and animals had plenty of vegetation to eat. After the flood, all that vegetation's been, for the most part, wiped out. And so there's a food shortage. And now you have animals beginning to eat other animals. And if animals are beginning to eat other animals, who is probably the easiest prey around? It's us, these bipedal, chubby individuals coming off an ark who can't run very fast and don't have claws or fangs. And so what God does in an act of mercy and grace is he puts a natural 
terror in the animal realm towards man. And he gives a a protection. He also gives a provision. And I love this one in verse 3. He says, now these animals, you can eat them. He says, you can eat meat. And we all said together, amen. Because I love me a good steak. But he says, you can eat meat now. Now, this is most likely, again, you've got a food shortage. Man prior to the fall was essentially vegetarian. And so if you want to be vegetarian today, go ahead. Um, If your heart is, I want to go back to original creation and being a vegetarian, praise the Lord. You can do that. But if you're going to be a vegetarian, make sure you're doing it for the right reason. If you're a vegetarian because you think that cow is sacred or because you somehow think that that cow might be your, one of your dead ancestors, well, you've just elevated that cow to a level it was never intended to be because that cow is not made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. And so he gives a provision of food. But he also, with this provision of food, you'll note there in verse 4, he gives a prohibition. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its, its blood. God says you cannot eat an animal with its lifeblood in it. Uh, That the blood of an animal is its life. And essentially what God is doing here is he's saying that you be respectful towards all life. And more than this, I think that, that God is preserving the divine institution of blood sacrifice. Remember, we see this running throughout this story, that God sets down sacrifice and blood sacrifice as his divine reminder of the promise that will come. It began with Adam and Eve in the garden post the fall. It'll be continued. It's reinstituted here in Noah. We're going to see that Abraham is going to offer sacrifice. We're going to see Moses is going to continue to sacrifice. And even we enjoy the institution of sacrifice. Every time we take that cup, it is a reminder of what? It's a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our redemption and for our sin. So in this prohibition, God is essentially saying, You can eat meat, but you be respectful of life. And you preserve, you preserve this divine institution of blood sacrifice. And then we see a providential protection in the institution of government. That government is not just a human developed institution. This is important for us to know that government is a divinely ordained institution. And we see it right here. In verse five, surely I'll require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made him. So here is God giving a strict prohibition against murder, and he is authorizing capital punishment. It is not a a license to personal vengeance. It is God establishing an institution, uh, a primitive institution of government, whereby those people would punish evildoers and murderers. Now, think about the position that God is in. You've got the first murder. We've already seen it. Chapter four, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. 
And what did God say to Cain after that? He says, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out from the ground. What is he saying? He's saying, Cain, you deserve death. His blood is crying out for vengeance. But what does God do in that moment? He doesn't kill Cain. What does he do? He makes an example out of him. He he puts a sign on him. And he says to the world, this is what happens to an individual that takes life made in the image of God. He is banished from the presence of God. But how did that work? In the line of Cain, just a few generations later, you have an individual named Lamech who does what? He starts killing people for no good reason and then mocking the judgment of God. And what has God learned? You cannot just threaten man. And so what does God do? God says, I know what man does care about. He cares about his own flesh. And so God, in an act of kindness and mercy, in a protection towards man, says whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Is capital punishment biblical? Yes, it is. The government was established primarily to protect the innocent and to punish evildoers. Now, I think we'd all agree if government would get back to those simple things, we'd probably all be in a better position. That is the original purpose of government. And what is God's logic? You don't do it because man is made in the image of God, that God is sovereign over human life. And so he concludes this with a call to be be fruitful and multiply. In other words, respect life and then multiply. It's an interesting picture that right after this judgment of God, where God takes a world of people, God now guards life and says life is not cheap. So we've seen the grace of God. We've we've seen the blessing of God. Now we see the covenant of God. We see this Noahic covenant. And God is promising the restraint of his judgment That God promises never to destroy the earth again by means of a flood. And it is a universal covenant. Meaning it's a covenant that encompasses everyone. Good and evil. Every person. All the world. You'll notice it's a covenant made not just with Noah, but with his descendants. God destroyed a world of people in the flood. But imagine with me how many people have been preserved in this promise that every person from Noah to our day has been preserved as a result of this promise made right here with Noah. I mean, this is not an old text, and it's not just an old promise. Our lives today are preserved on the basis of a promise that God made with Noah. Not only is it universal, it's unilateral, meaning it's God's covenant. There's no need for ratification on the part of Noah or anyone else for that matter. You can listen to me. You can even ignore this promise. You can profane the symbol of this promise and use it as a symbol to celebrate sin. But guess what? Even that does not negate the promise. The promise of God remains because it is not based on the obedience of man. It's based in the abundant and overwhelming grace of God. And even more than that is unconditional. No matter what cosmic evil occurs, God will not again destroy the earth by means of a flood. 
This is a covenant, folks, that demonstrates the vastness of God's love, the vastness of God's mercy and his grace. And the sign, every covenant has a sign. What's the sign? The sign is a bow. Literally, it's a bow. Like a, like a bow and arrow. And the bow is always pointed in which direction? It is always pointed heavenward. It is a powerful reminder that God's wrath and judgment gave way ultimately to grace and peace. So that every time we see a rainbow, we are reminded that man is sinful, that we deserve the judgment of God, that God's bow of judgment should be pointed towards us. But God graciously and mercifully continues to sustain life. And judgment is God's strange work. Ultimately, we know that that rainbow reminds us of the work of Christ. That who took the brunt of God's wrath that should have been ours, God's bow of judgment was pointed instead of at you and me, but at Christ who bore our sins and bore our shame on the cross so that we would not know God's judgment but so that we might know his grace, his mercy, and his salvation. What a powerful picture that, that we have in Noah and the flood and this covenant that God makes with him and with us. You know, I've, I've read this so many times this week and prayed and asked God to give me direction as I proclaim it to you. But I've wondered so many times, if Noah could be with us today, what would Noah say to us? Do you know what I think Noah would say to us? I think Noah would tell us God's wrath is real. I think Noah would tell us that God's wrath and judgment is terrifying. You know, Noah and this story is often a children's story. But boy, you read chapter 7, it's not much of a children's story. It is terrifying. To see the judgment of God against sin. I think Noah would say, you need to realize today his judgment, his wrath is real. And God's patience does run out. And God does, does judge unrepentant sinners. But do you know what I think Noah would tell us most importantly? As terrifying as his judgment is. His mercy is overwhelmingly glorious to those who trust him. I think Noah would say to us today, if you don't know Christ, if you've not gotten on board the ark of God's salvation through faith in Jesus, I think Noah would challenge you today. Trust Christ. Know the mercy and grace of God. You will not be disappointed. And to those of us who have trusted and gotten on board this ark of salvation and who feel like we're floating through life, do you think, you know what I think Noah would say to us? He would say, wait upon God. He will not forget you. He will remember you. He will return. Noah, I believe with all my heart, would say, our sin is abundant. In fact, stay tuned next week What's Noah going to do? You know what Noah's going to do? He's going to build a garden 
He's going to eat of a forbidden fruit, and he's going to sin, and he's going to need to be covered. Who does that sound like? We're going to see it all over again because man is still sinful. I think Noah would say man is sinful, and God's judgment is real, but his mercy is more. No matter where you've been or what you've done, God's grace is more. And so you you may have heard this song. This song just kept ringing in my mind. I just want to read you the lyrics as we close. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that while we are sinners, your mercy is more. God, I pray if there's somebody today that is understanding more and more that they're a sinner. God, I pray that they would know today that no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter how far they've wandered, your mercy is more. And if they will run to you and run to the ark of your salvation through faith in Christ, there's grace, there's forgiveness. God, I pray that they would know that forgiveness today. For anybody who's wandered, for anybody who's never trusted in you, I pray that they would run to God's ark of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your love and grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.